Um, so we come to the, uh, the Babylonian exile and particularly the story of Daniel. But, uh, when you're talking about Daniel, that's uh, of course uh, a story of, of the exile that it features in many other uh, books of the Bible. Uh, such as uh, Kings and Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and so on. But I'll focus primarily on uh, Daniel. The Babylonian Empire was the the largest and most powerful that part of the world had yet seen up to that stage. And uh, we had playing on a loop this uh, little video of some Babylonian uh, artifacts and statues and things as you were coming in with their astonishing uh, blue painted eyes. Uh, here's an interesting diagram of the structure of the, the book of Daniel. Uh, and I'll uh, focus actually on, on 1 to 6, which is the more narrative section, although you get various of the, the dreams that Daniel interprets. And then uh, from 7 to 12 is more of a focus on visions, uh, again, and prophecy. Uh, so most of the, uh, the exilic uh, historic stuff is in 1 to 6. Now, Daniel is traditionally dated to the, the late 6th century. Uh, it can't be earlier than about 538, uh, so between 538 and 500. But it's dated to the 2nd century BC uh, by uh, so-called liberal scholarship. Uh, partially, I think it has to be said, on the assumption that predictive prophecy which the, the book contains, uh, is impossible. And if you make that assumption, then you have to shift the date in order to uh, make the book fit that assumption. Um, however, at least eight manuscripts of Daniel uh, were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, including one that's been dated to around 125 BC. Now, uh, these dates are not as precise as that. That just means very early in the first century. And given the time needed for Daniel to be written and copied and uh, promulgated to that area of Qumran, accepted by the community and so on, um, that uh, seems to be a good indicator that Daniel uh, was probably written before uh, the second century. In addition, the sixth century book of Ezekiel refers to Daniel uh, three times. And I think particularly in, in terms of historiographical argument, uh, Daniel gets details right concerning the 6th century BC, which a 2nd century BC author was very unlikely to have known about. Um, for example, uh, Professor Bruce Metzger uh, notes that the intimate acquaintance with Babylonian manners, customs, history and religious life that none but a contemporary would have known. Um, another uh, author references uh, how Daniel possessed a more accurate knowledge of Neo-Babylonia than any other known historian since the 6th century BC. Professor Yamuchi refers to the increasing mass of linguistic and archaeological evidence, uh, much of which we have pictures of today, which helps support an early date for Daniel. So I think this is a, a particularly uh, impressive accumulation of, of evidence, as we'll see. In terms of the genre of the book of Daniel. This is actually a, a matter of uh, heated discussion. Uh, in the Apollos uh, Guide to Daniel, written by Ernest Lucas, he reports that the most widely accepted categorization of the stories in Daniel 1 to 6 is a, a category, a genre called court tales, 
which lie somewhere on the continuum that runs from imaginative writing to historical reporting. And Lucas concludes that it may not be possible to say quite where these stories lie on that continuum. So if you think in terms of films going from uh, eyewitness documentary to uh, a recreation of historical events to a film based on a true story to a film inspired by a true story uh, to the recent Keanu Reeves version of 47 Ronin where they stick in lots of uh, you know, dragons and magic and, uh, and Keanu Reeves. Uh, although it's based on historical events, you can see there's quite a spectrum uh, there that we might be talking about. Um, my sense uh, for what it's worth is that Daniel is more towards the based on a true story end of that spectrum than the 47 Ronan uh, end of the spectrum. Uh, Professor Keith Kitchen, in his excellent book on the reliability of the Old Testament, summarises uh, his look at this period by saying that for the period of the Babylonian conquest of Judah and the exiling of an important part of its population to Babylon, Babylonia, the biblical and external sources match closely in terms of history and chronology. The numbers exiled to Babylonia comparable with previous Assyrian usage. The elite and useful people uh, were the ones taken away and other folks were left to raise revenue from working the land in accord with ancient imperial usage. In Babylon, Jehoiachin's presence and life on allowance is clearly evidenced. The sequence and dates of 6th and 5th century imperial rulers are closely agreed in biblical and other sources. So let's work our way uh, through the, the story. Beginning with uh, this cuneiform uh, tablet it's part of the Babylonian Chronicles which record important events on a year by year basis uh, this is not a translation but this is a summary of what it's saying and this particular uh, chronicle uh, notes how Jehoiakim the king of Judah had ceased to pay tribute as he should have done that Nebuchadnezzar's army besieges Jerusalem and captures it uh, in March 597 BC and the new king of Judah Jehoiachin was captured and carried off into Babylon. Um, we have this little seal impression, uh, which has uh, upon it uh, the words, the property of Eliakim, steward of Jehoiakim. Uh, so the, the steward of uh, King Jehoiakim, uh, therefore some archaeological evidence of the existence of Jing, King Jehoiakim. Uh, this was excavated by William uh, Albright, interestingly enough. Uh, as for Jehoiachin, the following king, he only had a three-month reign, uh, poor chap, a young ruler, 18 years old, as Carl uh, Butt references. His uh, brief reign is chronicled in 2 Kings 24, uh, but the text states he did evil in the sight of the Lord and the Babylonian king, came against the capital and besieged it, and so on. Um, his miserable state of affairs lasted over 30 years in captivity through the entire reign of Nebuchadnezzar. However, and you can hardly believe some of the names uh, of the, these guys, but this is generally his name, that the following king from Nebuchadnezzar is Evil Meridoch. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they also had a Babylonian god called Sin. So I think these may be where these, these connotations of these words come from for us. But Evil Meridoch became king and he took pity on Jehoiachin and released him from prison. 
The biblical text mentions that the Babylonian king spoke kindly to Jehoiakim and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings that were with him. And uh, in addition to being released from prison, evil Merodach gave Jehoiakim Jin a set amount of provisions from his stores. As for his provisions, there were a regular ration given to him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. So things did improve for him slightly in captivity. But interestingly, we can, again, from Babylonian documents, uh, we can have uh, confirmation of that. Here is the particular document that mentions uh, sesame oil being apportioned for Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and so much sesame oil for the five sons of the king of Judah, and four liters for eight men of Judah, and so on. So we have Babylonian records uh, that exactly parallel what we're told happens to Jehoiachin as he goes through his uh, exile experience. And here indeed is a Babylonian picture of uh, uh, people being taken into uh, captivity uh, as the people, are, or at least the, the useful people, are carted off, uh, leaving behind the farmers to uh, raise money from the land. As for Nebuchadnezzar himself, until about a century ago, uh, it was commonly claimed by uh, biblical sceptics that um, Nebuchadnezzar was a completely made-up figure. Uh, we had no uh, archaeological or extra-biblical evidence for him. Um, here is one, for example. Here's a, uh, it's a stone, and he had it imprinted in the stone, again, in, in cuneiform text. Uh, this one talks about Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who cares for these, these gods, eldest son of uh, Nebopolsar, king of Babylon. The Greek historians uh, ascribed the, the building of Neo-Babylon to uh, a queen, Ceramias, or Samuramat, uh, who was a queen mother in Assyria, in the Assyrian dynasty, who actually had nothing to do with the building of Babylon. But this was the, the general idea of who uh, was the, the royal personage in charge of all of this uh, big Renaissance building work in Babylon according to uh, the historians of the time. However, according to the book of Daniel, we read in Daniel 4.30, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Um, Well, we have all sorts of archaeological evidence now that it was indeed Nebuchadnezzar who was the, the builder as it were, not directly, of course. I think he had minions to do the actual hard stuff for him. Uh, of Babylon, for example, this clay cylinder found in the ruins of Babylon describes three palaces which Nebuchadnezzar built for himself in Babylon. Or what's called the East India House inscription, uh, a stone block uh, found in the ruins of Babylon and uh, given to a representative of the East India Company uh, in Baghdad. It records Nebuchadnezzar's wish to glorify the god Marduk through his many building works in the capital. And famously, uh, the Ishtar Gate, a very impressive uh, structure. We have a recreation in, I think it's a German uh, museum, of just this uh, inner part of the Ishtar Gate and some of its uh, decorations, a very uh, splendid uh, structure uh, indeed and there's an inscription from the Ishtar gate again from Nebuchadnezzar talking about how he uh, 
caused this to be built, the blue stones, the, the depth of the foundations, the bulls and the dragons that decorate it. Thus I magnificently adorned them with luxurious splendor for all mankind to behold in splendor. And uh, we still can uh, behold the, uh, the splendor of those decorations of the, the, the dragons and the, the bulls and lions and so on. Uh, yes, I think those are from the same museum that the Ishtar uh, Gate recreation uh, is in. And Jeremiah 39, we get a description of Nebuchadnezzar coming to besiege Jerusalem. And there's a, a mention of when they give in and the officers of the Babylonian army come in and, and sat in triumph at the middle gate. Uh, various officials are mentioned and there is one uh, Nebu Sarsakim, a chief officer or eunuch might be a better uh, translation there, who uh, comes in uh, after the siege of Jerusalem. And again, this is a report from the Telegraph in July 2007 for a fairly recent discovery. Uh, Michael Jerser, a visiting professor from Vienna, made a discovery in the British Museum that supports the view that the historical books of the Old Testament are based on fact. Searching for Babylonian financial accounts among the tablets, Professor Jerser suddenly came across a name he half remembered. Nabu Sarsrusakin, described there in a hand 2,500 years old as the chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar II. Jerser and a Syriologist checked the Old Testament and there in the 39th uh, chapter of the book of Jeremiah he found spelled differently. Of course, this is before the days of standard spelling in dictionaries. Uh, he found the, the name of Nebu Sarsakim, uh, dated to the 10th year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II. It's a, it's a little chit from uh, a Babylonian temple uh, that he had given uh, some uh, gifts to, a payment to the temple in Babylon, quoting the exact date and the name of the guy who did it, the very same guy who uh, in later employ comes into Jerusalem. Talking of Jeremiah, it's worth just uh, doing a side reference to the fact that uh, Jeremiah's messages were told were recorded by a man came named Barak, son of Neriah. And here indeed is another one of those uh, seal impressions uh, that talks about this seal belonging to Barakiah, the son of Neriah, the scribe. Uh, so we have an impression of the seal of the guy who wrote down the book of Jeremiah. How about the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Um, as the uh, Babylonian names were given to the three friends of, of Daniel, their Hebrew names are changed for Babylonian names. Well, nothing particularly direct on this, but we do know that burning in the for, as a form of execution was typical practice for Babylonian rulers, and we have various examples from that, both biblically and extra-biblically. And there was, interestingly, a clay prism found in Babylon uh, with uh, columns of text listing various government officials. And that uh, prism names, well, it might name these three guys in particular. It certainly names names that these three guys had, showing that the Bible was accurate about the kind of names that people had back then. Uh, Hananiah's name is given in the Babylonian equivalent, Hananu, uh, and not the recorded change of name in Daniel 1.7, which was to Shadrach. 
whereas the other two names are the, the Babylonian names that are given uh, to the other two friends of Daniel. So it's not certain that it's, it's the three guys, but you know how many Babylonian officials were there? And we've got all three names on this one uh, clay prism. So that's interesting. The Archaeological Study Bible, which I just bring to your attention, the existence of the Archaeological Study Bible, if you're interested in that sort of thing, uh, mentions how uh, Nabonidus was the father of King Belshazzar, of Belshazzar's feast fame, uh, with whom he ruled as a co-regent for at least several years. This is an important fact to bear in mind. But we have a Qumran scroll, again, from where the Dead Sea Scrolls and so on, Qumran scrolls, dating between 75 and 50 BC, uh, commonly called the Prayer of Nabonidus. Uh, but it seems to be an apocryphal account of a healing of King Nabonidus that probably is based on Daniel 4, rather than the other way around, as some people have argued. Um, Gerald Hassel, or Hazel, uh, argues that several scholars, uh, although they've argued that the narrative of Nebuchadnezzar's madness in Daniel is dependent upon the, the prayer of Nabonidus. Contemporary cuneiform evidence uh, from a particular stele actually throw doubt on the, the historical details in the prayer of Nabonidus, so it, it seems to be in conflict with other extra-biblical data. And there are significant differences between Daniel 4 and this prayer that can't be overlooked. If there is a literary dependence, it seems to be um, that this is a, a later apocryphal count um, rather than vice versa. And indeed, Ernest Lucas, again, mentions that there is a... Uh, this is uh, William Blake's uh, famous painting of uh, Nebuchadnezzar gone mad, of course. Ernest Lucas says, there is a fragmentary cuneiform text that seems to refer to some mental disorder affecting Nebuchadnezzar, and perhaps to his neglecting and leaving Babylon. Uh, Hazel, again, mentions the same text from the British Museum, he says, in lines two to four, Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned and it's stated that his life appeared of no value to him. If Nebuchadnezzar is the main actor in this text, then the phrases in some later lines, such as, he does not show love to son or daughter, family and clan does not exist, his attention was not directed towards promoting the welfare of one of the Babylonian gods, could easily be seen to refer to the strange behavior of Nebuchadnezzar during his time of mental incapacity. Various uh, theories of sort of trying to uh, mentally diagnose uh, Nebuchadnezzar have been put forward. Uh, one uh, theory that seems quite intriguing is that there might be a, a link between his condition and the Gilgamesh uh, epic. That in the, the Gil Gilgamesh myth, there is the figure of en Enkidu, who is a savage, animal like creature who was hairy, unclothed, and ate grass until he became civilized. So maybe uh, Nebuchadnezzar's madness was that he thought that he was Enkidu uh, from the myth, and that's why he was behaving in that way. And to our ears, it sounds very strange that you know, if, if, the, if the monarch suddenly becomes mad, um, that he could then come back and be monarch again when he recovers, and so on. Um, but again, putting it into, uh, into context... Uh, archaeologist Alfred Horeth notes that during the term of his illness, Nebuchadnezzar would have been treated well, 
because the Babylonians would have considered him to have been God-possessed. They wouldn't have said, oh, he's gone mad, he's lost his marbles. They would have said, he's been possessed by the God. Particularly if he's enacting uh, the the characteristics of a mythological feature uh, figure uh, from the Gilgamesh epic, perhaps. Anyway, he is uh, succeeded, and we come to uh, Belshazzar, Belshazzar's feast fame. The Greek writer Xenophon in the 4th century reports that a king whom he doesn't name, but whom he does describe as a riotous, indulgent, cruel and godless young man, was killed when Babylon fell. But we also know from other sources that Nabonidus, who remember had this co-regency with him, was captured and later deported. So to whom was Xenophon referring? It can't have been Nabonidus. Well, we get the name from the Bible, although Xenophon doesn't provide it. It is, of course, Belshazzar. Um, he had previously only been known from the biblical books of Daniel and from this unnamed reference in Xenophon. Uh, when references to him were found in various Babylonian inscriptions later. Uh, The Babylonian inscriptions indicate that he was the eldest son of Nabonidus, uh, and there was a popular uprising led by the priests of Marduk, uh, chief god of the city in Nabonidus, who favoured the moon god Sin, made his son Belshazzar co-regent, and then hived off to Arabia uh, in order to sort of placate things, as it were. So when Nabonidus went into exile in about 550, he entrusted Belshazzar with the throne and a major part of the army. And according to the accounts in both the Bible and in Xenophon, Belshazzar held a last great feast at which he saw a hand writing on the wall the following words in Aramaic, the famous mene, mene, tekel, aparshin. The prophet Daniel, interpreting the handwriting as God's judgment on the king, foretold the imminent destruction of the city. Not a a pleasant message to receive, but because he was the only wise man who actually could translate it, Belshazzar uh, did uh, make him, well, as it says in Daniel 5.29, then Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the city. And that was a a sort of interesting conundrum before we knew about this co-regency between father and son as to, well, if Belshazzar is the king, why doesn't he make Daniel the second most important? Well, it's because, although he is king, he's the junior king, and he only had the authority to make Belshazzar the third highest in the land because his dad is still off there in Assyria. So we have a cuneiform uh, temple receipts from Sippar uh, talking about Belshazzar presenting animals to, uh, to the temple as an offering of the king and we have the, the cylinder of Nabonidus here uh, talking about uh, Belshazzar, my firstborn son, the offspring of my heart Daniel in the lion uh, preserve or in the lion's den um, we have some nice pictures here of uh, the kingly sport of lion hunting from the Assyrian Empire in ancient Assyria lion hunting was considered the sport of kings And uh, it's not unlikely to think that this uh, had continued on in popularity and that therefore there would have been some lions uh, kept in a preserve uh, for the sport of hunting to which uh, you could have thrown people if you didn't like them. Uh, This, of course, though, happened under King Cyrus of Persia 
who had by then taken over the Babylonians, Babylonians and whom uh, the book of Isaiah predicted would let the people of Israel finally go free out of their exile back to Jerusalem. And this uh, famous uh, Cyrus cylinder uh, says in part, I entered Babylon as a friend. You, you don't know how much of this is good propaganda, but I entered Babylon as a friend and established my royal residence in the palace of the princes and with jubilation and rejoicing. My numerous troops walked around Babylon in peace. I also restored the cities on the other side of the Tigris to their hitherto long ruined temples together with the images they had contained and arranged permanent new buildings for them. I also gathered up the one-time inhabitants and returned them to their homelands, just as Isaiah had promised. <laughs> 